Now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard podcast. And as always, I am your conductor, Phil Bell, PB Crisp, Mr. 645, your highly trained rail enthusiast. And I'm coming to you from the E. Hunter Harrison chair at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees because the learning never ceases. And you know it behind this. The Brunswick Green PLB microphone. It's great to be back with you. As you can see, we're still on Penn Central Cam because we've not been able to remedy some of what's been going on the past few days with our wonderful technology issues. And as I like to say, I love trains, but I hate big tech. And quite frankly, a lot of time, I hate little tech too. But this is a great week in railroading, and we're happy to be with you for our Wednesday episode, which is episode 12, where we will talk about the crash at Chase, Maryland, 37 years later, as the anniversary of that just fell last week. But before we get too deep into that, I want to go over a couple of news stories with you, and the first of them comes to us from Long Island. Now, uh, as you know, on Long Island, the Long Island Railroad back in the 1990s decided to do a concession for its freight rail service. And that went to New York and Atlantic, which is part of the, um, oh boy, why? Wow, I'm almost forgetting here. Part of the Anacostia and Pacific group of shortline railroads. Well, there is a new effort, and let me put it here from our website, allthingstrains.com, where, by the way, you should be at all times if you are a rail enthusiast. Um, that a potential new railroad takes its next step. Now, this is a 5,000-foot track. I want to be clear, a 5,000-foot track that will be interchanging traffic to the New York and Atlantic. And this is head, uh, named Townline Inc., and it is supported by Carlson Corp. And Carlson Corp. is one of several shippers in the area uh, that would connect to the Port Jefferson line that would like to have rail service and would be using this 5,000-foot industrial track to accomplish that. Now, I know I uh, shared this on not only our website, but a few of the various uh, Facebook groups that are out there. And by the way, Facebook is nice for being a rail enthusiast, but All Things Trains and our chat GP50 forums are even better. So go over to allthingstrains.com and click on chat GP50 forums, chat GPT, chat GP50. Chat GP50 is way more fun, uh, but it's a great place to go and discuss rail. But I got a little bit of pushback and I had somebody say to me, well, um, you know, it doesn't seem all that interesting that somebody's building a 5,000-foot industrial track. And at first blush, you may not think so. But as we like to talk about a lot here, the bread and butter of freight rail is the traffic. And where does the traffic come from? Well, increasingly, it's coming from a lot of intermodal sources. So that means traffic that is originating at a customer's dock, which is not located on a railroad, but also uh, in a foreign country. And it might be put on in a shipping container and shipped across the ocean here, or it might be put on in the same shipping container that has a highway chassis and then placed on a rail car at a either transload facility or an intermodal yard. Uh, also, you might have full truckloads going to that transload facility and then transferring the cargo directly, and that could be something like a liquid or some solids like plastic pellets uh, that are being transferred into rail cars. Well, look. Transloading and intermodal freight is terrific. We love it. Uh, it's one of the things that really helped to save the rail industry in the 1960s and helped move it beyond a time when carload freight was in decline, or in, I should say, significant decline. However, carload freight remains one of the best 
and most profitable ways that a railroad can move traffic. And so when shippers are willing to invest their own capital to build a short line, even if that short line is just 5,000 feet and is actually going to be operated by the main carrier anyway, to connect with them, that means they're more likely to be contributing traffic for a long period of time, number one. And number two, they will be deeply involved with the railroad itself in determining what the service levels are going to be, what the rates are going to be, and so on. That will lead to less friction in that relationship. That means a much longer term uh, in term of them shipping by rail, and that means more money for the New York and Atlantic, which is going to enhance their ability to do what railroads are supposed to do, and that is what? Generate returns for the shareholders. That's why the railroad is here. Uh, the other thing I want to point out, which I also thought was very interesting, and we're back over at allthingstrains.com, and I will put that up on the screen, is a new development in South Florida. And that is the Miami Central station, which is already operating for its owner, or I should say primary operator, which is Brightline, is now going to receive commuter trains from TriRail. So this is great because it points to additional coordination between regional rail, which is regional passenger rail, which is Brightline, and local commuter rail. Uh, tri-rail. That's a very big positive. And it's also notable to remember how quickly this is being done because another example of that attempted coordination, which was Amtrak uh, to serve the Miami airport station, which is operated by Tri-rail, this has not taken place for more than 10 years. And that station has been in existence. It has been operated by Tri-rail. It has been a very successful location. And think about how good it is if you are able to originate someplace like a Sebring, Florida, or Winter Haven, or even Okeechobee, which all which are served by Amtrak, come down and get good flight rates out of Miami Airport. And you could have a more or less seamless connection from that station into the airport, except Amtrak and the South Florida Regional Transportation Authority can't figure out how to get it done so that both of them are able to come into that terminal. As a result, Amtrak has continued to stop at its Hialeah facility, which is aging. It's a nice facility. It's an interesting facility. It has a train layout, HO scale inside, um, but you can tell it was built in the 1970s and should have been left there, quite frankly. Uh, but the speed with which Tri-Rail and Brightline have been able to get this done is astounding. And so I believe it is next week, yes, January 13th, next Monday, you will now see Tri-Rail serving Miami Central. The other thing that's interesting about Tri-Rail serving Miami Central is that it, in a way, it is bringing back a little bit of what used to exist in that area because Miami Central is actually built roughly where the Florida East Coast Wooden Depot was, which was their Miami station. And it's kind of strange that when you think about how important Miami even was back in the 1950s and 1960s to tourism, uh, the stations there were very small. Seaboard Airlines almost looked like a storefront and wasn't demolished actually until relatively recently, sometime in the 2000s, whereas Florida East Coast operated to a small Miami Depot, which was almost never shown in any kind of promotional material by the Florida East Coast. But the Dade County Courthouse, which is a tall structure and rather imposing and looks like you would expect a large county courthouse to be, is what was always shown in these uh, promotional pictures. Let me see if I can find a picture of it for you so you can see um, uh, what I'm talking about. And it was so interesting because as I learned... Um, 
about passenger rail in uh you know when I was when I was a teenager when I was younger I thought man you know once you get to Miami and this is where the champion goes and this is where the Florida special goes and so on uh you know you you rarely actually saw the station but this picture from the JF blog which is talking a little bit about uh, some of the changes and whatnot in transportation. That's generally what you saw if you saw anything that was related to the Florida East Coast Railway in Miami, which is that big imposing building in the background. And you think, yeah, that's that's the train station. That's that's what it is. But in reality, it was really this wooden structure right there. So you can see, uh, you know, back then there wasn't a whole lot that you know, they were terribly enthusiastic about when even the railroad isn't willing to show itself off. Uh, and here is actually a larger photo of the station itself. I'll get you there. That's the old station. But despite that, despite it not being a, you know, a showpiece, it had trains that were coming from everywhere. So you think about the Dixie Flagler that was coming from Chicago. You had trains coming from St. Louis. Of course, you had the famous New York to Florida trains like the Champion, later the East Coast Champion, and the Florida Special coming from New York. So this was a real hub. And now that Brightline is back there, a little bit of that spirit, even though it's not going to be with at least not now, uh, with E units and F units that are brightly colored and so on, even though that's not what's there, uh, it is a little bit of hearkening back to it. And it does open up a lot of great opportunities for travel in the region because Brightline, even though it is still a nascent service, is doing a very good job of helping to connect that and bring a higher dollar traveler who normally would just simply hop in their car uh, and very nice cars because you know we're not talking about uh, your Toyota Jalopy, we're talking about your, you know, your Grand Wagoneers, and I mean the new Grand Wagoneers, or your uh, Land Rovers and so on. It's attracting that crowd to now take the train. And then when you add in more connectivity with Tri-Rail, that's going to improve the ability to travel for business within the region and accomplish the goal of what Brightline was developed for, which is to help provide additional value to the residential properties that uh, Florida East Coast Industries had developed over many years through its various affiliates. And then there is one more before we get to the main event that I would like to talk about because it goes a little bit into uh, what we will discuss. And that comes to us from the Chicago area and it is related to the yellow line. So I'll give you a little look at the article from Progressive Railroading. And that is that the CTA is reopening the yellow line. And the yellow line is best known to most of us as rail enthusiasts as Skokie, Skokie Swift. Skokie Swift, because it goes up to that uh, area. And it was also very fast. In fact, in the past, it operated speeds up to 55 miles per hour. And it is also best known as being part of the Chicago North Shore in Milwaukee. So that is the original part of the North Shore line that stayed around after the uh, carrier's abandonment of most service actually was reestablished after that abandonment. Uh, in November 16th, though, on November 16th of 2023, there was a collision near the Howard station. And in that collision, a train hit a piece of snow blowing equipment that had been left a little bit too close to the track. And therefore uh, the line was shut down for more than roughly across two months. And so it's been reinstituted. The service now will be operating yet again. Uh, strangely enough, 
it will be operating at 35 miles per hour. And there is now going to be what the article says, manual blocking on the rails for non-transport vehicles. Now, look, I'm not your rail safety guru. Uh, There will be other people who we have on this podcast to talk about the specifics of rail safety. And there have been for many years different ways of manual uh, and when I say, excuse me, direct manual control, as, as I like to call it, uh, as far as railroad signaling and to protect different pieces of track uh, to make sure that collisions don't take place. This has happened over years. So that's nothing new. But I do think that reducing the train speed by 20 miles an hour and also adding this is overkill because we have to remember, although this was a terrible situation where 38 people were injured, um, you also have more than 50 years of, or, or almost 50 years of operation. No, actually it is more than 50 years of operation before that. That was rel- that was largely safe. It was very safe, in fact, comparatively. So the current 2000s and 2020s approach to safety, which is simply to have a knee-jerk reaction and do the most restrictive and absurd things possible in the wake of an accident, while some might believe that it is safe, I believe that undermines confidence in the rail system. It undermines confidence in the people who actually have to do the job of providing rail service. Because, look, while that operator may have made a mistake and, you know, to a certain extent, it is that individual's responsibility. But it's also the responsibility of whoever decided to leave something parked too close to the tracks. Um, So there's, you know, as we'll see when we talk about accidents, there's always more than one culprit. Uh, undermining that with the simple knee-jerk reaction of, oh my gosh, everything is terrible. Let's throw the baby out with the bathwater, blah, 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 blah. That has to end. And so I think that the CTA's approach and uh, and the others who are involved in this have made a mistake in the way they are approaching it. Now, since that was a discussion of a railroad accident, let's move on to the main event here, which is to talk about the Chase Maryland train wreck which took place on January 4th, 1987. Now, this was something that I was, at the time, uh, five years old, because I turned six in uh, in March. But as I've told you, I always loved trains by that point. I, I, was, I loved trains ever since I was a baby. And so when you turn on the TV, or the TV's turned on for you at that age, and you see the images of the cars wrecked, and you see all the discussion that's going on where people are rightfully so saying, hey, this is terrible. This is a disaster. Uh, this is wrong. And then, of course, you add to it my grandmother who always will quickly say that, oh, my gosh, something's terrible. We absolutely have to change everything. Change it, change it, change it. Everything's unsafe. Uh, you know, and, and that's just because she is not someone that understands rail transportation, frankly, as most people don't. So, you know, and, and was at that time riding the train with me. So uh, it's understandable that she might say that. And to give you a little example, that's the type of image that was popping up on your TV screen, an aerial view of the cars crashed, mangled, and right in the front, this just um, trying to figure out the, the best words that I would have used to describe it, devastating vision of equipment that was completely destroyed, not just because the trains were broken, but because you knew what that meant for the people who were on board. 
So this accident was really something that was a landmark event in railroading, and in many ways it continues to inform how rail is operated today, largely because the result was federal licensing for locomotive engineers. Until that point, you were qualified, uh, you were deemed to be qualified to operate a locomotive by the railroad who you worked for, and now that is still the case, but that means now there is a formal process that they will go through to do that, and you'll be registered with the federal government as being a licensed locomotive engineer. Um, Now, to go into the history a little bit, the route that this took place on, and Chase, Maryland, just in case you're wondering, is located north of Baltimore to the northeast. And I'll show you a little bit on the map where that is so you can get an idea. Um, It's located on the Gunpowder River, and I'm bringing up for you a... Google map. Thankfully today, our, uh, our tech, our big tech is comp- is uh, cooperating with us a little bit. So as you look through, you can see right here, this is the gunpowder river. These lines roughly where the mouse is, that is the bridge where the track would go across. And chase is just to the, uh, this would be railroad West because the main line, Philadelphia to Washington is considered to be an east-west, excuse me, railroad south, railroad south. The main line Philadelphia to Washington is a north-south route, whereas the main line New York to Philadelphia is an east-west route. And uh, you keep that in mind as we talk a little bit more in depth about it. So this is the main line Philadelphia to Washington, which was the designation of the Pennsylvania Railroad, Penn Central, and even Amtrak use for it today. It was built by the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore, and later part of the Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. And that railroad on its own comprised a dense network of Pennsylvania routes in southeastern Pennsylvania as well as Maryland. Some of those routes include the Pope's Creek Secondary, which now CSX operates uh, as part of its service in the region after it took over its piece of Conrail. And this gives you a little idea about the PB&W. Now, it's worth noting that the PB&W also, from a corporate standpoint, had a lot of other railroads in the Midwest rolled into it as part of the Pennsylvania Railroad's way of doing business, where they would had a lot of lines that they either purchased or leased, as most railroads did, but they incorporated them from a corporate standpoint under the PB&W. So when it came time to unwind all of that, they you would find out that there was some railroad out in Indiana or Ohio that was actually part of the PB&W. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But again, from a uh, corporate standpoint, that's what it was. Now, in 1976, this line passed from being part of Penn Central to Amtrak. Now, in those days, they there were portions of it where speeds could go up to 100 miles per hour for Metroliners. And so in 1971, I want to get you a little look at what the timetable looked like at that time. Uh, you can see that these are what some of the speeds looked like. And if you go over to uh, Gunpow, which is the interlocking, so you see Gunpow and Chase, uh, that those are on the uh, on the list here. Excuse me, I'm sorry. This is not the speed section. This is actually just showing the stations. But Gunpow and Chase, roughly uh, in the 80 mile per hour range, was permitted during that time. 
So the Northeast Corridor Improvement Project came along after 1976, and this was an effort by Amtrak and the USDOT to upgrade these routes, which were collectively called the Northeast Corridor, really starting in the 1960s, but specifically so by then, uh, uh, which extended from Boston to Washington and still called the Northeast Corridor Line today, uh, to allow for up to 125 mile per hour operation on portions of it. So today... Um, as was the goal of that plan across portions of southern New Jersey, as well as uh, portions in Maryland, you are able to do 125 miles per hour for specific equipment. And for a long time, that meant uh, Amfleet cars and AEM7 locomotives. But now today, of course, it means the Cell Express. The Cell Express, as you know, can do 135 over portions in New Jersey, where the speed limit is a little bit higher, as well as some higher speeds, such as around the curves in Elizabeth, where they can do 65 versus 55. But all that is to say that the Northeast Corridor Improvement Project was a milestone because increasing these speeds was one of the things that the federal government believed would bring a lot of people to not only Amtrak service itself, but also back to the rails overall and would be a showpiece for the type of upgrades that they were hoping could be done on other parts of the rail network. Although we know today that has still not taken place and likely won't for any substantial period of time. Um, The train, the Amtrak train was number 94, the colonial. Now the colonial's history goes back to the Pennsylvania railroad. There were a variety of trains that the Pennsylvania operated between Boston and Washington, But by the 1950s and 60s, the Colonial, along with the Patriot and the Senator, were some of the premier trains operating on this route. The Pennsylvania would operate them between New York Penn Station and Washington, D.C., while the New Haven, New York, New Haven, and Hartford would operate them between Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and New York Penn Station. And there were uh, very nice sets of equipment. Uh, We tend to call them congressional coaches, although, uh, you know, they were... They were used for the Congressional, Senator, Patriot, Colonial. Parlor car service was offered in addition to coach service. A similar pattern continued as you went into Penn Central, although the service did certainly decline under that. And then uh, by the time you got to 1971, Amtrak took over the Colonial. And what they did is started to change things around in terms of where trains went. And the Colonial became a New York City to Newport News train after reconfiguring a lot of the services that were provided previously by the Chesapeake and Ohio. And so this way they were able to get more ridership because now rather than connecting Newport News just with Richmond and then Charlottesville, the Colonial and other trains on that route were going to connect Newport News in the Tidewater area with Richmond and now Washington, D.C., which quite frankly is a much more natural and, you know, one of the few times where I'm going to say that Amtrak might have gotten uh, gotten something right a little bit more than some of the predecessor railroads. But one of the things they were right about is that was focusing more on the traffic patterns that had developed where you saw more of the military and the like in the Newport News, uh, Hampton Roads area having more intercourse, so to speak, with Washington, D.C., because you have a bunch of military people in the Hampton Roads area. What's the closest major installation to them? Well, Washington, D.C., where the rest of the seat of government is. So that made a lot of sense, and that's how the colonial was reconfigured. As time went on, the train was extended back to Boston. So now you had a Boston to Newport News or Boston to Richmond service, and some of the endpoint changes would be changed from time to time as Amtrak saw fit. By the time, uh, the day this was 
uh, happened, actually, the Colonial was operating between Boston and Richmond. And we'll show you a little bit of the timetable, because if there's anything we love here, it's to show you timetable so you get an idea of what things used to look like. And there you go. You see the Colonial train number 94 uh, operating between Richmond and Boston, departing Richmond at 10 a.m. And here it is. Uh, flag stops in Fredericksburg and Quantico, reaching Washington, D.C. at noon, where it would change engines and receive the two AEM-7s uh, that pulled it on that fateful day, and then leaving Baltimore at 1.11 p.m. The train on that date consisted of uh, 12 cars, 11 of which were Amfleet 1s, and then number 7624, which was a Heritage Fleet coach, uh, and that coach was originally built for the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Uh, the train was due to make its final stop at Boston South Station at 8.43 p.m. Of course, this is not the only train that is part of the discussion. The other is a Conrail train, which was symboled ENS-121. And ENS-121 was operating uh, that day from... Bayview Yard, which is visible from I-95. If you're going north of I-95, after you leave the Fort McHenry Tunnel, you'll go through a few um, a few curves and past the Baltimore Travel Plaza. But Bayview is easy to see on both the right side and the left side of the highway if you're looking closely. And by the way, if you're driving, I encourage you not to look very closely because... We believe in safety here at All Things Trains, but that's an example of Conrail number 5045. That is one of the engines involved in the wreck. Uh, it was actually the lead unit at the time. These 3,600 horsepower locomotives were built by General Electric, uh, delivered to Conrail in 1983, and they were used largely for intermodal service. In fact, this one and the entire group of locomotives had come down to Bayview Yard from Harrisburg on train TV-22, which was part of TV-2, uh, or an extension of TV-2, which had operated from Chicago. So that's where these engines had originated at first. Uh, the engineer of ENS-121 was a man who would go down in infamy, and his name was Ricky Gates, Ricky Lynn Gates. Ricky Gates had hired out with the Penn Central back in uh, 19, I believe, 1972. 72. So he was roughly a little, a uh, little under 10 years into his service with, uh, in the, on the railroads. And as part of his, uh, and there's Ricky Gates there as part of his, um, you know, employment when Penn Central ceded operations in most places to Conrail, Ricky Gates became an engineer for Conrail. Uh, Jerome Evans was the engineer for Amtrak. He had also hired out with the Penn Central, had been there roughly the same amount of time, and then, of course, ended up going to Amtrak. Now, both trains departed uh, their respective stations, Baltimore Penn Station for Train 94 and Bayview Yard in Baltimore at roughly the same time, which is around 1.16 p.m. Uh, ENS-121 was taking track one, and reach speeds of up to 64 miles per hour. Now, that's important to note because track one did not allow for movement at that speed by freight trains. In fact, they were supposed to be operating at uh, a maximum speed of 50 miles an hour. Of course, this was ignored by the engineer. 
at the same time, train 94, it left Baltimore, it had reached the speed of 125 miles per hour, and this was something that had recently happened as part of the NECIP, which had gone on for quite some time uh, since the 1970s, but was still taking place at that time. The speeds had recently been upgraded to 125 miles per hour, which would allow this train to operate at that speed through uh, through the area, Gunpow Interlocking, so named for, obviously, the Gunpowder River, which was the next thing that the trains would encounter on a bridge. Uh, it's noteworthy, though, and this would become something of a controversy, that because of the Heritage Fleet car we mentioned, car 7624, uh, the train was restricted to 105 miles an hour. Amtrak never, even to this day, has allowed uh, trains with these cars uh, other than Amfleet, Horizon Fleet, uh, or Cell Express to operate at the 125 mile per hour speed limit. Now, it's been tested. Uh, they will survive. Actually, in this during this uh, accident, there was there were at least some reports that they were moving as fast as 128.1 miles per hour. And notwithstanding what happened, it does prove that they can operate at that speed safely. But Amtrak never authorized that. As a result, one of the takeaways from this was that the NTSB ultimately sanctioned the Amtrak engineer, who of course lost his life, saying that he was operating the train too fast in violation of Amtrak's rules, which most people, when they heard that, thought it was absurd as it was, because certainly he was killed and there was no negative impact, nor did he have, um, you know, nor would it have been possible for him to have stopped the train from 125 miles per hour, uh, you know, when that came about. And to give an idea of what what we were looking at in Gunpow, you'll see here that on track two, this is where train 94 is proceeding at 125 to 128.1 miles per hour, whereas on track one, this is where you have Conrail ENS-121 with Conrail number 5044 in the lead and Ricky Gates at the throttle. Uh, and you can also see that as it progresses, this is where they receive signals. At first, you see 836-1. That shows it's restricting. 816-1 says it should stop. And then, uh, excuse me, 836-1 does give it a uh, approach. And then afterwards, it's given signals that tell it it should be should be stopped. But the engineer of this train, Ricky Gates, did not see this. And a lot of the reason why he did not see or note or pay attention to this is believed to be because he and the brakeman were under the influence of marijuana and they had been smoking marijuana during the trip. So they admit to, and in a video that we will link in the description, passing a joint back and forth as they were making their run. And it said that one of the problems with that marijuana can cause is a loss of time. Now, if you think back to the last time you drove a car, assuming that you do drive, uh, or some of you out there, I know you operate locomotives, a lot of the way that we will judge where we are, even when we have a specific route in front of us, whether it is in uh, through an employee timetable, whether it was through a track map, which generally is not used, but, you know, obviously I'm just describing things that might be able to tell you where you are, 
or if you're driving a car and you're thinking about the different landmarks that you go through before you make a specific turn or when you typically slow down, uh, time plays a lot of the role in it and, and therefore speed as well. If you've altered your mind in a way that time does not appear to pass for you in the right uh, in the what you're used to, then it is entirely possible that you can make mistakes and therefore miss signals, miss uh, objects that are in your path or otherwise, and therefore end up someplace that you're not supposed to be. And just think, get in an argument with a friend, you're arguing with them on the phone, you don't realize that that light turned red, it's supposed to be green, it's almost always green, things should be fine, and the next thing you know, you've been T-boned by the car that didn't realize that you weren't stopping. Well, likewise, uh, Ricky Gates and his conductor, Butch Cromwell, being under the influence of marijuana, Cromwell claims that he had missed some of the signals because he was preparing his lunch, uh, both of them, again, under the influence. And there's also the story, which has not fully been substantiated, although it is discussed extensively, that they also had a television in the cab uh, at the time and were watching some kind of, a, I believe it would have been a football game, uh, you know, since it's January. Um that those combined for them to make a variety of mistakes, miss several signals, trap operate their train far too fast, and then end up in the path of the oncoming colonial, which was moving at then 105 miles per hour by the time the engineer noticed, by the time Amtrak's engineer noticed what was there. And I want to give you a, um, going back to this Medium article, which is very good, and we'll also link it in the description. Uh, an idea of what you're talking about here. So this view is what um, the engineer, Jerome Evans, would have seen as his train was approaching. He is on track two. Track one is immediately to the right. There's one track over further to the right. That's track A. On track two were Conrail's locomotives, and they had gone beyond track two and entered the interlocking. Therefore, they are right there in the path. This is the these are the last views that Jerome Evans would have had of those locomotives there. And um, although the switches were not lined to permit the Conrail train to enter, it's said in whether it's the reports or some of the reporting that covered it, that the locomotives, because of the rate of speed they were traveling, forced their way through the switch and onto the main line. So as you can expect, there was a lot of death and carnage. Uh, 16 people died that day. Uh, of 15 of them were passengers. Many of them were students, college students that were returning because this is the time when typically your winter break is finishing up. Maybe you're getting back to college a little bit earlier. Maybe you have to be there uh, in a few days. And there were millions of dollars of property damage also. Um, and, you know, it, it, it goes just to show, and I don't generally like to do this because I don't like people to see um, railroads in a negative light, but a big part of a railroad are the negative things that go on. And that is what you see uh, over 30 of the fire, excuse me, there, there were 60 fire companies, 30 volunteer and 30 professional in Baltimore County at the time. That's what they encountered as they went into 
try to get people out. You had luggage getting thrown around as a result of the collision. You had some people who were in some of the lounge cars because there were three lounge cars on the train. Not all of them were serving food, but uh, they all had microwave ovens. Those were thrown around, and that meant that people were having difficulty getting out those who were able to do so. Um, The locomotives, obviously, you had a lot of destruction there. And to give you an idea, look, that's the locomotive that was in the center. Um, And then the 5044 was the only piece of equipment in all of this that didn't derail, and it was shoved 900 feet down the track uh, away. And finally, you know, just again, so you get an idea of really what the impact of this was. This is AEM7 number 903. That was the uh, the lead unit on the train. And yeah, uh, you know, this is why whenever you hear someone in railroading say that the rules are written in blood, that they really are. Uh, and Ricky Gates, he was sentenced to over 100 years in prison. As a result of this, uh, he served roughly five. If I recall correctly, he spent plenty of time going around uh, you know, in a, in a positive way, talking about how there was a true need for substance testing, because while, you know, it's relatively easy to tell that somebody is drunk, you know, you'll see the eyes, you might see the way that they're walking and you can, you know, say, Hey, you know what? You're not, you're not in good shape enough to, to operate a train or any other piece of equipment before they, uh, before they, you know, go to the the seat, um, the engineer seat. It's much more difficult to see that for marijuana. And what's more, as Gates and Cromwell acknowledged, a lot of what they did actually took place inside the cab of the locomotive after they had departed Bayview Yard. So that's why the supervisors had not seen these guys being uh, un- appearing to be unfit for duty. So a big result of this has been a lot of the rules that have come about since for the way that testing is done, engineer licensing, and so on. But the other reason why I wanted to talk about the crash at Chase and show you a lot of these images Uh, haunting images is because we're now living in a different world. And in this different world, marijuana is legal in a lot of places in some form, including the state of Maryland where this took place. And so we're now getting into a situation where while it will always be illegal and against the rules to use this substance and other substances, or at least I hope it always will be, before you operate a train or an airplane or anything of that sort, or yes, even your automobile, and maybe even a golf cart, because those communities are also growing, um, we're going to have a very real question about what happens when these substances are detected in the system of these individuals because they consume that during non-working hours. So what is to say that down the road you're not going to have a time when a union like the BLE&T or the UTU is going to have to defend an employee who may not be actually intoxicated when they present themselves for testing, but because they used marijuana at a time that they're off duty, they wanted to smoke weed with some friends. I mean, they are an individual. They should theoretically be allowed to do that because that's what the law says in their state. 
Um, but then they're going to get jammed up by their company because they can't pass the test, even though they may not be intoxicated at that time. They may appear to have presented themselves to be capable for duty. What is that going to mean? What is that fight going to look like? How is Congress going to mediate that, especially considering that marijuana is still illegal at the federal level? How is that enforcement going to be done? And so as we look back to what the impact of that drug was on this horrific accident, as we look back onto what the uh, the approach overall being taken by the railroads was in that time, and all of the anecdotes we hear about it being a very, very widespread thing, not just marijuana, but use of a variety of intoxicants, that being something that had been going on for decades to that point. Uh, what will the future hold? I don't know, but it's certainly something that we as uh, folks who work in the industry or folks who are fans of it uh, and investors in it need to understand and a conversation that we're going to have to have. Now, what's my opinion? Of course, I'm a war on drugster. I don't like marijuana. Can't stand it. The only thing I think is okay is alcohol. And then, you know, that needs to be entirely out of your system before you get into a locomotive cab, or I should say go on duty, much less get into a locomotive cab. I'm old school in that respect, and, and I understand not everything that I say here is going to influence what public policy is, but that's certainly the attitude that I want to take for it. So I hope you had a, um, a chance to um, look at this in a very, um, and think about this in a very deep way, because again, I want you to understand we've got to talk about railroading in a comprehensive way. And that means certainly looking at times when things did not go well and why they did not go well. And one other thing I want to also point out before we go is I've had the opportunity to ride with a number of engineers, uh, whether it was at a museum or on, on a short line railroad ride in the cab. And when you see the seriousness with which, those individuals, whether they're volunteers or employees, take the job that they're doing. They can have fun, they can joke around and so forth, but they take it seriously. And you can see that in the way that they handle the controls, in the way that they call the signals, in the way that they comply with the rules. It is so surprising to then hear about what someone like Ricky Gates did and uh, his conductor, Butch Cromwell, and the attitudes that many in the in the uh, the train and engine service and so on, we're taking at that time. And I want to be on it very clear. I'm not saying that because I want to denigrate a lot of those folks. A lot of those folks are terrific, but it was certainly a, po- a problem that was there. And um, and so that's one of the things that's always astounding to me. Not just the death, not just the destruction, but the fact that there were were among people who had been on the job for a long time so much of a cavalier attitude toward what was going on. And um, and I'm very hopeful and thankful that in the years since that, that you've seen uh, a good chunk of that cavalier attitude waste away. Now, we will be back with you next Monday. And the date for that is uh, the 15th. So the 15th. And I was wrong earlier when I said Bright Line would be coming in on, on, the 15th, on Monday. Uh, we'll be back with you on Monday the 15th where we're going to talk about a more cheerful subject, which is diversica- diversification in the railroad industry, um, if it's a good thing, if it's a bad thing, and where it's been the most interesting. So we will see you 
down the main line. Uh, please, in the comments, let us know what you think. Share your memories of this, especially if you were in the area where it took place. And um, uh, please visit allthingstrains.com. Follow us on Patreon and go on over to our Etsy to see the latest that we will have for sale. So we'll see you on the main line, and I hope you have a great day.